On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking to Charles Jurovinsky, who he and his wife, Margaret, just donated $3.3 million. It's remarkable. It's a really generous offer uh, to fight COVID. Look, not everyone can do it, but he can, and he did. We're going to be chatting about why and about giving in general with him. Uh, We're also going to be talking about other areas of need in this city. The United Way is doing what it can. Uh, but, you know, speaking kind of as a res- on behalf of all the charities, we're going to be talking with the head of the United Way about the challenges of doing what they have to do. It's a very important and busy time, but how can you do it when maybe the money isn't there as much as it might have been? And we'll be chatting about those press conferences, the ones that we seem to have every day now for long press conferences that there's not always a lot of information in those. Are 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 politicians talking to us because they're really helping us or maybe because they're oh, I don't know, campaigning? We'll talk. Today on the Scott Radley show on 900 CHML. Uh, Mr. Jurovinsky, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Hey, it's our pleasure. Uh, Not everybody, obviously, is going to have the chance to talk to you in person or to meet you in person, and so let me presume to speak for them when I say thank you for this. This is incredibly generous. Thank you, and you're welcome. We'll try to put in more next year. (laughs) Well, hopefully we don't have a COVID situation to deal with still next year, but I get your point. Um, Tell me about the conversation that you and Margaret had when you sat down and decided to do this. Well, I'm sure people have heard this before, but I have to go back to our career at uh, Flamber Downs, the community, our community, the surrounding community supported us well at Flamborough Downs. And after the sale of Flamber Downs, we uh, were uh, gifted with a great deal of money and uh, we had a discussion. Uh, we've just got to say thank you uh, to the public at large that supported us, and it seemed that health care and donations to health care was the way to go. So it was a no-brainer, and uh, that's what we did, and we're delighted that we did what we did. The, uh, years ago, um, a bit of a personal story, years ago my father, at the height of the Ethiopian famine, decided to book his holidays and paid his own way and went over and worked in the feeding centers back then, which I thought was an amazing thing to do. But that was spawned by, that was sp- uh, brought on, because one night he was sitting watching the news and saw a report from there and decided he had to do something. What was the thing that made you decide right now? What was the thing you saw or heard or the news report or the story or whatever that that made you think to do this? Well, uh, to begin with, uh, uh, over the years, we've really been in touch and uh, uh, were at awe, if you will, or awestruck as to our health care system and how good the health care system uh, is in our town. And we thought that uh, with our uh, thoughts, the best way to give back is through the health system. We did our research uh, with reference to the various bodies, etc., embarked on that. And uh, we do have, in the city of Hamilton especially, and perhaps people don't realize this, but we do have a world-class uh, hospital system Uh, in research and at McMaster University with reference to the uh, 
health care providers, and we've got some of the greatest researchers, the greatest front-end people who are devoted and serve all of us. So, again, it's a no-brainer. You just give back. That's where we thought we were spending our money the best, and we are delighted. So there was no... Uh, when you decided years ago to start putting it towards medical, there was no personal uh, incident or some time when you were you or Margaret were in the hospital and got special treatment and said we have to do it? It was just a decision that that's where the money should go? Scott, I don't even like to talk about it because on the contrary, okay, I was stricken with cancer going back almost 20 years ago, didn't come into it at all. The cancer has debilitated me personally but I don't have any umbrage in any way, shape, or form against health care. That's life in general. Hmm. And quite frankly, I get a kick out of it because uh, Margaret and I, if you slap us in the face, we'll give you the other side of the face so you can slap us on the other side, but you're still our friend. I'm hoping no one's done that. <laughs> <laughs> No one's taking advantage of that offer, I hope. You you don't deserve that for sure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Where did the ability to give come from? Because I don't know that everybody, well, I think everyone has the ability. I don't know if everyone knows how or wants to. Well, I think think it probably stems from, hello, are you there? I am still here. Okay. Uh, It stems from uh, our background being a depression baby. Poverty poor, both of us, lack of you name it, we had it. And uh, I, I think that would have been the umbilical cord. And when we got in the position that we are in, where we could give, then it was just a natural thing to do it because, well, say $3.3 million at this point in time, probably buy you about 12 Rolls Royces at least. What the hell would we do with 12 Rolls Royces? Okay, you can't drive them all. But in this case, giving back, and especially to healthcare, with the professionals that we have, and the working staff, and the background that we have in healthcare in Hamilton, it's unnatural. And, and here's the beautiful part about the whole thing. When I walk the streets, when we're available, or wherever I go, everybody that we look at, we know we are they're touching their lives in some way through healthcare. Because sooner or later, everybody gets sick. That's true. Now, that is true. How can you have a better feeling than say I'm talking to you, Scott? Uh, how can you get a better feeling that I know someplace along the line we're giving you a hand? or helping you. It's, it's a great a, feeling. It's a great point. It's a great point. Can I ask an indelicate follow-up question then? Is it because you've been, you've been, as you say, you've been poor and now you are wealthy. Uh, is it harder or easier to give when you've got a fair amount of money? Well, I think it's a hell of a lot easier when you've got it because, uh, uh, for instance, a lot of people give and you've heard me say before, at least others have, nickels, dimes, and quarters make dollars. Now, it doesn't matter how much, but if everybody gives a little bit with what they can afford, and if they can't, they can't, because they have to look after themselves to begin with, 
But if there's a little bit left over, there's no greater feeling than helping your fellow man. Now, and I, I want to draw another illustration. Sure. I can remember the first time I put a quarter into Salvation Army's kettle at Christmas. I did it, and I felt real good. I was a paper boy at that time and shine shoes, but hey, I was getting tips. I put a quarter in the bucket and felt good. And I guarantee you that anybody that gives in any way, shape, or form, doesn't matter how much, how little, or what they do for their fellow man, it makes them feel good. And, you know, my question, some people are probably sitting at home going, what a dumb question, Radley, because, of course, it's easier to give when you have more money. And I understand, like, technically it is, but, I mean, we all know that statement that Rockefeller made once upon a time when they said, how much is enough? And he says, just a little bit more. And, I, I mean, I think it must be hard at times for some people, no matter how much they have, they always think, well, I just need a little bit more. I don't want to give it away. Well, uh, and incidentally, while I'm watching you, we're just appearing on CHCH, and I'm holding this against you <laughs> because I don't know what I'm saying on television. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, I, I'll tell you, just a little bit more, uh, what we're doing in our lifetime, currently speaking, everything I do with reference to our investments, etc., I am looking for a little bit more because I really want to see us uh, make this thing work, and I'm talking about health care and donating to health care. Uh, and, and maybe it's hard for people to understand or whatever it is. My total thrust, our total thrust, Margaret and myself, is to make as much money as we can currently in our investments to give it to health care. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful sentiment. Uh, just, listen, just before I let you go, on a totally unrelated topic, and it's 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 a little silly, I guess, based on the serious topic that we're having. But I've always wanted to ask you this: there is a statue of you and Margaret in the front lobby of the Jurovinsky Hospital. How close did they get? Do you think to catching you in that moment? Uh, if you're talking about the appearance, yeah. How close did they come? How do you do? You like it? You love it? Excellent, excellent. And I will tell you. That was one of the embarrassments of our life because how many people have a sculpture in their honor and there again, healthcare by virtue of a $10 million donation that we did uh, on behalf of the former Nora Francis Henderson Hospital that is now called the Juravinsky Hospital and Cancer Center. Ah, uh, well, when the, the board... Uh, insisted on doing that, and of course we said, no way. Well, in retrospect, uh, we're proud of that now, uh, and and how many people have a sculpture in bronze uh, while they're alive? Not many, not well, many. I, I can tell you stories about that that just absolutely blows me away uh, with reference to that statue. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring in Brad Park, who is the president and CEO of the United Way Hamilton Halton uh, at this point. Brad, thanks for doing this tonight. Tonight. Good evening, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, and for the record, not the same Brad Park that used to play hockey and is in the Hockey Hall of Fame, I don't believe. Uh, not even close, <laughs> 
Just for clarity, you know, so people don't have an image in their mind and go, wow, he's moved from hockey to that. Good for him. Yeah. Um, would this be, uh, would we be right now in the United Way's fundraising campaign at this point normally? Uh, or is it always going on? Well, it is an annual cycle, but normally we would be just wrapping up our uh, previous campaign. So the 2019 campaign is just closing its books and we would be beginning the 2020 campaign right uh, in the next month. So is this whole situation, it's got to be having an effect on that? Um, it, it, it will have an effect on that. And certainly going forward, we're not exactly sure how the 2020 campaign will look. But uh, it, it certainly doesn't mean that we don't have the opportunity to look to the community to support uh, this crisis in, in different ways. It does, I would think, though, and Brad, I want to get to who you're helping and what you're doing in a moment, but just before that, because this, this does, I would think, put you in a bit of a, a a tough spot, an uncomfortable spot a little, because um, so many people are being pinched with their money. They just don't have a lot right now. Uh, and I'm guessing every single charity is after that same dollar that has become much more difficult to get. It, it's probably not ideal to be competing for cash with other charities who are doing good work. Well, it's, it's definitely a time of uncertainty, but I, uh, I don't think right now, especially that we look at it as competing. In fact, behind the scenes, there is a lot of collaborating going on between funders, between those organizations that are looking for the same funds to look after our communities and make sure that we can, we can work together to get the dollars or the funds that we raise into the right places. I, I mean, that's, that's very reassuring to hear. How does that work? Because... Again, everybody has their uh, their area they want to make sure does the job it's supposed to do. And, and it's not, uh, I hope I'm not speaking out of line, but it's not common for everybody to sort of give ground to everybody else. How does it work? How is it working? Well, actually, behind the scenes, we, we do collaborate often. We are working together to build our communities together. But how this works right now, um, we sit around the same table together. We talk about the funds we've raised. We talk about how we're going to allocate them into the community. We make sure that there's not duplication going on there. We make sure we're looking at where the gaps may be and that we can fill them all. So we are working really hard together to make sure that there's a a really broad, connected social safety net around our community that's going to uh, hold everybody together. You have, United Way, you have set up a COVID emergency fund. What does that mean? What What is that doing right now? We have. We've, we've established a fund that's really going to help support our community's most vulnerable. Um, the fund is intended to provide, obviously, monetary support to community-based agencies that are working on the front line with individuals that are going through poverty or isolation, um, as well as those who are supporting families under stress. So while there are other funds out there doing the same thing, as I mentioned, we're doing our best to collaborate to make sure that we're getting those funds in the right places. And, you know, it's funny because you you mentioned collaboration again. That was going to be my next question is there are people who are really in need uh, and that's unquestionable right now. There's a lot of people who are in need and and it becomes, because there are so many charities, it would become, in my mind, a confusing situation to make sure that that money is spread out to make sure that as many people as possible get it and you're not doubling up or leaving somebody behind. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and we're not just looking at the immediate need as well, right? We're having to look out uh, three weeks, two months, six months, and what this might look like for our communities and identify the needs that are going to need to be addressed then. For example, mental health is something that, you know, as every day goes by, 
that system is getting heavier and heavier taxed with people going through challenges that need to access those services. So we know that demand is going to grow uh, exponentially. How do we make sure those uh, services and programs are in place to support people uh, who are dealing with mental health issues at the time when they need it? What kind of strain is there on you guys right now? Because I would think that, uh, I mean, as someone who just a member of the public, when I think of, okay, what group would be able to help me if I was in need? I mean, United Way is a very big name. A lot of people, it would come to mind immediately. So I would guess you would be having an awful lot of people contacting you. Uh, we, we do have people contacting us, absolutely. We try and direct everyone we can to um, um, the 211 service, which is a, a phone service where you can just dial 211 and they will support and answer any social service question you have. So if you are struggling with, I don't know where to uh, have my to, to get food delivered to me. I don't know uh, where I go if I'm suffering from mental illness. There are, uh, uh, it's available in 150 different languages, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it's a support that is available to everyone. So if someone is struggling with a social service question, we are directing them to 211 to help uh, help them find the solutions. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in a guy who, um, oh, and, and some of the lines are ringing. Some people are going to take a stab at this one. So as I say, be a little patient if you're on the line. And if the line for some reason is busy, call right back. Uh, this guy who I'm going to bring on now, though, not solving the uh, the quiz question today, but he has a show that you hear on 900 CHML every Saturday called What Were You Thinking? Which, I don't know, Jamie West, but that seems like it could be the motto for, I don't know, everything these days. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I was thinking back when our new season started in September of changing the title of the program because I just thought, ah, this doesn't apply to enough things. But uh, now it's in certainly in fashion with everything that's going on, that's for sure. Uh, good evening to you, Scott. Good to be here. Well, I appreciate you doing it. And you know when I think a lot of people are saying, what were you thinking? I think a lot of people have relearned who the people in their family are in the last number of days. <laughs> <laughs> what were you thinking is yeah. a question I bet is being asked in a lot of homes right now. Yes, I would expect that to be happening. Um, I hope that everybody's keeping a lid on the pressure uh, of being together an awful lot of the time. Um, that would be my hope, although, you know, statistics are showing that the police, for example, are... Oh, well, we'll get Jamie back. We, uh, Hey, last hour it was Charles Jervinsky we hung up on accidentally. Today it's uh, right the second hour, it's Jamie. It is Friday. It is later on Friday in the end of a long week. Technology and Fingers are not our friends at this point, but it is a, it is a valid question and a valid point that when you are now stuck in a house for as long as we are, when we're not used to it, we are not used to having this much time with our families. I mean, we, yeah, I like to believe we like our families, but we are not used to it. You, you, you get up in the morning, you're crossing paths, you see each other, you have a shower, you maybe grab breakfast, you out the door you go, you come home at dinner, you maybe have dinner, hopefully, if you have a chance for a family dinner, and then, I don't know if you do something or if you go to different TVs or whatever else, but then you go to bed, 
how much time are you really spending it well now? Now you are spending time with your family. Hey, Jamie, you're back. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, 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 that was a record cutoff. Like, I understand why people cut me off. It, it never surprises me when I'm cut off, but... Man, that was in record time. Well done. Well, we were just saying that uh, you know you, you're you're having a very good test right now uh, of two things. One is whether you like your family, but B, I think this is a real. Um, it's a report card on how well you chose your spouse or significant other. No question about that at all. It's um, it's a definite opportunity for everybody to review the choice of their significant other. It, re- it it really, really is. It's like, huh? Yes, no, I, hopefully everybody out there is saying, no, I chose well. I um, Whenever it was, I, I made a wise choice. Well, I know I did. So I'm, <laughs> there you go, and I and I feel the same way. So hey, let me uh, let me move off uh, because you know what? I think we are um, we're getting very close. Uh, as I say on Friday at seven fourteen, almost we're getting very close to being coronavirus out for the week, and I completely understand that. And uh, you know, I I, I I get that. So let me ask you something entirely unrelated to that. Although, well, I'll just get into it. I, I was talking to someone who works for a TV station the other day. And they had been trying to get some footage for something from the national broadcaster, the public national broadcaster, the one whose initials rhyme with CBC. And um, they were told, you know what? No, you can't have that because we want to show that again sometime. And that is our property and you are not allowed to have that. That was the, what I was told was the answer. Jamie, you've been in broadcasting a long time. And when I heard this, my initial response was, wait a second, we own the CBC. Taxpayers own the CBC. So unless it's a show that they've paid, like a syndicated show, if they bought an American show to show that, if it's something the CBC created, should this should that show not be accessible to everybody immediately because it is public property? Hmm. Um, yeah, you would think that it would be. Uh you know, under that uh, set of uh, facts, if if you will. Um, Now, you know, in in the case of private broadcasters, a lot of the other private broadcasters, the the idea of trying to put or wanting to put a CBC thing on the air is simply that it was horrible television. So why would they want to do that? They want people to watch their station and they want to sell airtime they want to sell commercial time to people and if you put crap on nobody will will buy it i'm talking about an event that was covered and essentially essentially news coverage or sports coverage but yeah and it was not allowed and i and i i looked at this and my first reaction as soon as i heard this was well wait a second we have paid for the taxpayers have paid for this this should then be, and, and I don't apply it only to CBC. I would apply this to a lot of things the government would have. I, I'm going to extrapolate this to information and other things. We own, we own the government. They don't own us. And I thought with, the, with government stuff or with the CBC, if it's a public facility or a public enterprise, that stuff should be in the public domain immediately, unless there is some national security issue that would keep it otherwise. I, I find it hard to argue against that. I, just, I in fact, I can't argue against it. Um, why hasn't that been the case in the past? Uh, I don't know. I can only assume that there's some legislative 
fine print written in the Broadcasting Act that prevents it. I know that doesn't take away from your argument. Well, then change the legislation uh, because we paid for it. We own it. We should have access to it. But, you know, um, yeah, maybe that's something among the 8 million other legislative things that needs to be reviewed uh, out there. But my guess is that it's not a very high priority. But, yeah, it's a very valid point that I, I think you're making for sure. And if and I don't know what you're speaking of specifically, um, but, you know, if it has something to do with the dissemination of important information, for example, in the times we happen to exist in at the moment, then that makes your point even stronger, I would think. Well, I don't want to say exactly, only because I don't want to give away who I was talking to or what it was. And, and if I say this, okay. it might. But again, I, I just come back to, uh, I was talking last night, we were talking on the show last night about things that the public has access to or doesn't, government things. And it just, we were talking about civil liberties and everything else. And I, I just look at so many things and scratch my head and say, why is that not available to us? Why is that information not in the public domain? Why is, why if we have paid for that as taxpayers, why does that not just become public property that you can use? I don't get it. And in the case of government, I mean, their, their entire, the entire culture of government is to withhold information. Seems to be. Information, right? I mean, that's, that's the, that's the nature of government, period, is to, is to withhold information and, and hold back on information and control uh, the dissemination of information. So I, I'm thinking that it's, you know, it's got a lot to do with that uh, in the tradition of the way governments work. And, and again, I know you want to, don't want to get back into COVID, but I think that what's been happening with, with the COVID thing is that we've been pulling back layers of curtains on things that have been hidden in the past that I think when this whole thing is over, there's going to be a lot of people rising up and saying, we got to change the way we look at things and the way uh, government does its thing. Anyway, that's, that's a three hour discussion all by itself. Well, that could be, that, that certainly could be, but we, there is, it has struck me. I I keep restarting. So I'm trying to figure out how to exactly word this, but it has struck me lately, especially that there is, and this is the discussion we were having yesterday about civil liberties. It has struck me lately that there is a perception that we, that the government owns us rather than we own the government. There, there is a, they're, they're, they are called public servants, servant, as in serve the public. It, but it always seems to work the other way around now. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I think there's a, a number of us that at, at times want the government to tell us what to do because not everybody's decisive not everybody has a strong thought on the direction that their lives should go in uh, like you and i do and other mouthy talk show hosts um but you know there's also the 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 side that says i want less government i want them telling me less but i think the vast majority of people want the government to tell them what to do because they don't know what the hell to do. Themselves. Well, well, and in a moment like this, I don't have any objection to the government, to the medical officer of health or whomever else offering advice. That's what they're, that's what they're there for. And I don't think anyone would complain about that. I don't think right, anybody would I'm, complain about that. Right, right. But I'm talking about take COVID away and we're just, let's pretend that we're just in, uh, you know, a normally dysfunctional uh, society um, outside of COVID. I, still think the same point applies most most people i 
want the government to tell them what to do. You think so? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I don't. I think. I think most people are not well read. I think most people do not have strong thoughts and opinions. They just they just move along like lemmings. And I think the minority of people are are the people that don't want uh, or, or don't want the government telling them what to do uh, at all. So that's just my that's my yeah. Opinion. No, it's. I mean, look. It, it, it. I go back to my point. If you are a public servant, I th- I think that when you talk about a doctor, for example, whoever's on TV these days or whatever, they are serving the public. This part, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. We we want your guidance because you have access to information that we don't have. But I, I listen. I applauded today the Ontario government releasing this information where the federal government has struggled to do this because it's like, no, no, this is this should be public information. This is the kind of information that I think we should be knowing about. Yeah, I, I don't think at a time like this, um, less information is a benefit at all. But that's the default. That's the default position, that we must cling to information until it's pried from our hands. And that, I agree with you, it's the wrong way to go. More should be out there. Fully agree. It is uh, well. You know, I I don't actually for a second expect that any of this is going to uh, to happen because if there's one thing we know, it's that nobody likes to give up more than they have to give up, whether it's a government or a company or whatever. But anyway, I, I, it was it was it was a fascinating well, one to me. Sorry, go ahead. No, it is. I was just going to say that you know the, the the whole information control thing is directly tied to politics too, which is which is what it, it's all about. The, you know. Governments decide what they're going to say, how they're going to say it, and how much of it they're going to say or not say based on politics. There's no way around that. Um, government's uh, main job is to uh, stay in power once, the, once they're in power. So you've got that happening in Canada. You've got that happening, certainly you've got that happening um, with the knucklehead north, uh, south of the 49th uh, as well. Um, so that, that's another point. You're not... You, it's un, you're not going to get straight goods, I don't think, uh, ever, um, unless you have, you know, a, an, an attack dog media that's willing to go in and press these guys constantly and cross-examine them on their, you know, the statements that they make, whether it's out front of uh, Rideau College or whether it's out, or a cottage, rather, or whether it's uh, in the briefing room at the White House. Rideau College. That, 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 that'll be something that's probably coming next. I'm opening I'm opening that. Rideau College. We're going to have a college for how to do hour-long press conferences in which you say very little. And and that will be the, the, the sole course that will be taught at Rideau College is to, uh, to, have, to achieve maximum face time with minimum information. Just like Trump, but I notice you're not talking about it. No, him. no. Look, I, I, I put it almost across the board. I, put a, I, I applaud almost all the politicians... For coming out and expressing what information they do. Generally, though, what we are finding, and I would like more information rather than less, but what I find is many of these, if not most of these politicians, are cramming about six minutes of information into an hour. I agree. You, you could come out, you could say your bit, you could answer a few questions and you could go away and we could get on with stuff. And if you have more information, I'm happy to listen to it. But it seems as though for a lot of people right now, the main point of these press conferences is merely to extend as much face time as possible because an election 
is going to be coming somewhere along the way, and I want to make sure that I've got my face in front of the maximum number of people I can. I could not agree more with that. I I absolutely uh, think that that is uh, that that is the truth. That there's a uh, that there's a subtext of campaigning uh, going on with uh, both the prime minister and with the president of the United States. Absolutely, anybody that denies that isn't living in the real world. I don't think. If we if the networks were to say you have ten minutes a day. Do you think that the information that we are getting right now could not be given in those ten minutes? Yeah, absolutely. No, you know, you know what ten minutes is like in a in a broadcast environment. It's a, it's an eternity. As we're as we're showing right now. <laughs> <laughs> right, having me on for ten minutes really feels like an hour. So. I don't, no, I, I, the, these things look. I, the, 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 the risk is, or the challenge with these press conferences, is that if you pull away or if you don't cover them, and something really important is actually said, you look terrible, and you look like you've denied your viewers or listeners that information. And yet, the flip side is, we sit there and cover them and cover them and cover them, and by twenty minutes in. You are seriously, you, you would be better off just listening to, you know, old records or something because, like, nothing is being yeah. said that's new. Well, once you get in, absolutely, once you get into um, uh, the questions that come from the the media gallery, um, that also reveals the separation of quality journalists because you and I both know that not every question that's asked by a, quote, journalist is a, is a good question or is a worthy uh, questions. Some of them are just ridiculous, and um, they waste everybody's time. So once, yeah. So once you're into that, there there comes a point, and I guess producers in television have to decide. Okay, you know, it seems like the leader has said everything they really want to say here, and I think we can bail out now because, you know, we don't we don't need to hear from citizen journalist B. May, at this point. may I propose one more piece of legislation? Since we talked about a couple things that we should legislate, here's the one. There is a there is a standard protocol that says that reporters north of the border, south of the border, wherever else, you respect the office. So the person who is the leader of the United States or of Canada or of the province or whatever else, uh, they we don't interrupt them. When we ask a question, they get to answer however they want to answer. I think that should be changed. So if you ask, hey, Jamie, what color is the sky? And you, and you start talking, you go... Well, once when I was a young boy living in Newfoundland, at, like, and you go off on one of these tangents, the reporter should be able to say, stop, stop, yep. you are don't not answering my question. We don't want to sit here for five minutes while you ramble incoherently into some political speech. You are not answering my question. Answer my question or move along. I am so tired of these non-answers to questions. If you don't want to answer legitimate questions, leave the dais and go away. Don't waste anybody I, else's time. I, I, I fully agree. It's, it, 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 if there was ever a time in history to employ the very thing that you're talking about, it's now. <laughs> I couldn't agree. I could not agree with you more. The press or the media have got to start um, viewing prime ministers and presidents as people on the witness stand in court, and they've got to start cross-examining them because the stakes are too high anymore for the general public. And their responsibility should be to 
get those answers out of those people. I, I, all it would take, all it would take, truthfully, maybe, maybe all it would take would be for the reporting crew wherever. And it's very difficult because you don't want to lose your access. And again, you don't want to miss something really important. But it would be for everybody en masse to say, listen, the minute you start not answering a question, we are cutting off the TV coverage and walking out the door en masse. So if you choose to start bloviating like a gas bag that wants to talk about everything except for the questions we're asking, we're out of here and you don't get the airtime. And maybe they'd love that. I don't know. Maybe they'd love to not have to answer questions, but I think they would really regret not having that exposure. No, they wouldn't love it. And, and, you know, that would have to be obviously an agreement made by, we'll say, the major media players and that they were all going to play by the same rules. In other words, they're going to increase their demand for accountability uh, of the prime minister or the president when they ask a question, and that they're all going to agree to some sort of, to, to do that. And you know what? If they get, if they lose their access, then that becomes, that should become a story as well. Guess what, everybody? I've been kicked out because I asked a tough question that you at home were sitting there screaming at your TV that I should, that I should ask. Mm-hmm. And, then and then they'll get even more uh a blowback. It's not as simple as, oh, you can't have access anymore. Information's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. It's far more, to your point, far more important for these leaders, prime ministers, presidents, what have you, to, to have that audience and have those media people there than the other way around. Really. Because at this, in this particular time we're in, I could live completely without... Um, any word from from the president at this point or the prime minister because I, I'm I'm more interested in knowing what the World Health Organization has to say or the or the leading infectious disease specialists in Canada and they're all easily accessible. Yeah, yes. I'm, uh, well, World Health Organization. I, I'm I'm starting to have some doubts about them too. When they start telling me that they believe what China's telling them, I start to say, wait a second. Um, don't lose your credibility that way. But anyway, I get your point. What we got to do is yeah. give every reporter an air horn in a press conference, and the minute you start going off off track, and just blow it, and then uh, we'll see how that goes. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.